there's a distinct life cycle to a traditional SaaS style business. They go through certain well-defined stages. You know, right out of the gate, the product idea that you have, can you build a prototype? Can you build an MVP? There's a lot of services that never clear that bar. You have this vision, can you create something that at least approximates the, the essence of it? Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Well, hey, champions, welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. If you missed last week, go back and check that out. I talked with Neil Gordon about crafting an elevator pitch that gives people chills in under 20 seconds. So if you haven't listened to it yet, I highly recommend you check it out. Be sure to download the free template from the show notes as well to create your own elevator pitch that gives people chills in under 20 seconds. Our current guest today is Jim Kane, CEO of RedChirp, which provides better business texting for highly regulated industries. He has an aviation background and still flies. In fact, a really cool Citation jet. Jim is a four-time founder, one moderate success, two successful exits, plus his current venture, which is blown up and found an outstanding niche. Jim has found repeated success working with his sister, Jenny, on multiple ventures over the last 15 years. Jim, Jenny, and Jenny's husband are all co-founders at RedShirt. Today, Jim shares the good, the bad, and the ugly of lessons learned and success secrets along the way and how to successfully transition from leading a mid-market company right back into startup mode without missing a beat. Today's episode is sponsored by Champion Leadership Group. Get free growth tools and map out a growth plan to scale your SaaS business beyond 10 million. Travel with fellow SaaS entrepreneurs on your growth journey using a proven methodology that is mentor-guided, results-focused, and peer-supported. Celebrate wins and quickly rebound from setbacks to achieve profitable growth, impact, and freedom. Unleash your SaaS growth at championleadership.com today. Okay, let's jump into this conversation with Jim and crafting a brand message that engages and intrigues. Well, hey, Jim, welcome to SaaS Fuel. How are you doing today? Oh, pretty good. Glad to be here. Excellent. Well, let's kick things off and start about, you know, tell me a little bit about your journey and how did you end up where you are today at uh, Red Chirp? Uh, well, that's a, that's a big <laughs> that's question. That's quite the story. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, you know, I've uh, I've had a couple of, of businesses over the years. I had a, uh, a software company called Intelligent Environments that uh, <clears throat> I started, uh, you know, with my dad, you know, kind of in college, right? So quite young. And uh, we were making software for textbook publishers. So it was the kind of, you know, software that goes along with a textbook. We did some for engineering and we made a, a, a product called Calculus Machina. And if if one of the four purchasers of Calculus Machina is out there, I'm terribly sorry there was no Calculus Machina too. But you know, it was uh, it, it was you know modestly successful. It, it never really got anywhere. Uh, I've had uh, an ownership interest in a aircraft maintenance shop and so forth. You know, which uh, 
wasn't really wasn't really where I wanted to be long term. You know, and I've been involved in a couple of uh, software startups that have grown, you know, to a pretty decent size, all very uh, niche down, uh, you know, type initiatives. You know, and uh, right before the pandemic hit, I'd largely transitioned out of, you know, the most recent of those two software businesses. You know, we're planning to take a uh, a year off, you know, and relax in between. And well, that that kind of didn't happen. There was no traveling the world or whatever going on then. And it's kind of hard to relax when when all you can do is stay home, right? Well, I mean, you know, for the first week or two, it's pretty relaxing. Yeah. Right around week 70, you know, it gets a little monotonous, you know, so somewhere in there we decided we need a pandemic project and that's how Redshirt was born. That's great. So tell me about, uh, you said, you know, really defined niches uh, with your software. What is the, the benefit of being, you know, in a, a small niche versus you know, being really broad and, and serving everybody? Yeah. So, you know, the, uh, uh, Everybody has great ambitions, right? Everybody wants to go into that that meeting, particularly when you're exiting a business or coming up with an investment valuation where they say, what's your total addressable market? And you say something like, everyone with fingers, <laughs> right? The The problem is there's really very few products that that really serve those huge markets well, right? It's very hard to know a, a broad market like that, right? When you niche down, which almost all startups have to do, you know, unless you have venture backing in the, you know, in the, you know, eight figure range, right? You know, you're basically going after a niche, right? Whether you know it or not. Right. Um, you know, in the niche, you can, you know, you can know what it is, right? And you can understand those customers and, and you have sort of a baked in answer to the question, why should they do business with you? Right. You know, if you can say, Hey, you know, we serve telephone repairmen in the, you know, in Kansas. That's sort of an innate answer to when you're talking to a telephone repairman, why should I buy from your company? You say, well, that's all we serve. And so you at least right. have the beginning, right? Yeah, they know that that's something that is for them if they're in that business. And then if they're out of that business and, and they do something completely different, they, they look at it and they go, this isn't for me. Yeah, that, that's right. That's right. And, and there's a reason to keep talking to you. Um, there's an implicit promise that because you serve that one specific niche, you know it, right? You know, and so that that's kind of where you have to start outside of a few, you know, very unusual cases. Even those unusual cases, by the way, if you go back and look at them closely, take um, like Uber, right? You know, celebrated, talked about a lot, enormous valuation, went public, all that great stuff. But initially, the market was people that needed a cab in, I believe, San Francisco, uh, one market, right? You know, it was very, very, it was niche down. Right. Right. And so um, it's, hard, it's hard to find somebody that serves everywhere. Facebook, same thing, was limited to college campuses for many years. So you got to start there. I think that's what's really hard to to remember uh, as founders is, is these big companies, they they started in one place. They started small. Mm -hmm. So they haven't always been the, the giants that they are today. And even you know, listening to interviews with those founders, you interview the, the founder of Uber, it's hard to remember back. What was it like at $5 million in revenue? What was it like at zero? What was it like at 10 or 20? And, and you know, they may remember back to the early days, maybe that's $200 million in revenue. Mm. And so it's, it's you know, a little bit different uh, in, in scale than what we think of. 
Sure. You also have the way that they want to be remembered versus the way that it actually was, right? Oh, how about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the uh, uh, you know, there's there's a story that has to get simplified for marketing purposes. You know, nobody wants to know the ins and the outs. Nobody except people that are trying to emulate the success, right? <laughs> Correct. Right. So, you know, when the marketeer comes along, there there was that interview one day where, you know, Zuckerberg, I'm sure, was asked, hey, tell me the story of Facebook by a marketing type. And he started going on about, you know, this and that. And that person imagined that she said, yeah, let's just forget about all that. <laughs> it's clearly <laughs> for everybody. <laughs> you know, right, right. what the story is going to be, right? Right. Yeah, this grand vision from the dorm room for everyone. Yeah, yeah. You know, or the, or the classic, you know, 10-year overnight success, right? Right, right. And, and that's interesting. Yeah, tell me about uh, you know your success journey and what has that been like. Uh, you know, has it been an instantaneous thing or has it taken a little bit of time? Well, I mean, you know, brain the size of a planet. I, I always meant instant success. <laughs> Never had to think about it. So, no, there's a there's a movie for, or there's a line from the movie Talladega Nights. You know, I wake up in the morning, I piss excellence. <laughs> 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 Sadly, that does not apply here, <laughs> right? You know, no, I mean, I, I did an entire business that, that failed miserably, right? You know, so intelligent environments, you know, although we, we, we made, you know, we did get a product out the door, which, you know, hey, that's, that's not nothing. Um, you know, four or five people purchased it, right? You know, at $30. So we can <laughs> safely conclude that that was not a financial success, right? And so what do you think the difference is in, in ventures like that that are successful and, and those that maybe aren't as successful? So it varies by stage, right? You know, so there, there's a distinct life cycle to, you know, a traditional SaaS style business, right? They go through certain well-defined stages. You know, right out of the gate, the product idea that you have, can you build a prototype? Can you build an MVP? There's a lot of services that never clear that bar. You know, you have this vision. Can you create something that at least approximates the, the essence of it? So, you know, intelligent environments with calculus machina, we got something out that that satisfied what we were trying to do, right? We never got anywhere past that point, right? As you enter the next phase, you have to find, you know, a, an initial cohort of users, right? Right. You know, yeah. so somebody that can use your MVP, right? Now they're going to be bleeding edge early adopters, right? You know, but somebody has to use it, right? And we barely got there, right? So, you know, we failed We failed right out of the gate, right? Or pretty close to right out of the gate. You know, and as you keep going down, you have to make a transition from your initial cohort, you know, into the, into the really the early adopter stage, right? You know, people that are very forward thinking, very sympathetic, you know, willing to put up with all kinds of limitations and bugs and so forth because they sort of share the vision. And as you journey through that, you're trying to, you're trying to approximate a product market fit, right? You know, that's your target at that point. So, you know, then you get to product market fit and then you go after, you know, the bulk of the early adopters, right? You transition into that early majority, right? So, you know, so you're kind of chugging along. Somewhere in there, you have to answer the question, hey, can I economically reach people? Right. right. So, you know, the graveyards of, of SaaS business, you know, the graveyard of SaaS businesses are filled with people that couldn't get a prototype out. So that's going to get most, right? Couldn't get an MVP. That's going to get more you know, couldn't interest anybody, you know, so couldn't get an initial cohort, right? You know, and then couldn't bridge that gap into, you know, hey, I have product market fit. If I show this to my target niche down audience, you know, I don't get a good close rate, 
Right. So that's going to take out, you know, almost everybody, right? That happens a lot. Yeah, I'd say it's most, uh, you know, most investors that are not of the angel bent, they'll say that if you don't have a million dollars in revenue, and there's usually some more caveats on that, you know, a million dollars in revenue and, and more than a certain amount of concentration, right? You know, then they'll say, I won't invest, right? You know, there's, so there's a big divide. If you can get to that million dollars in revenue with no real customer concentration point, you know, then you, you start to get to where you have decent chances of making it to an exit or building a sustainably good company, right? You know, then you're probably up to like 60% you're going to make it or so would be like my uneducated guess, right? So when you get there, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're pretty good. Before then, that's where all the failure happens or most of it does. Yeah, it's definitely a, a really tough journey. So how do you know, what are the, the marks of, of when you know that you have that good product market fit? So it's going to vary a lot. And one of the things that I think is important is that before you enter each of these phases, you define what success uh, looks like, right? There's a story of two moonshiners, right? And they've, they've just created their first batch of their, of their concoction, right? And they're talking to each other about how they're going to price it. And one of them suggests they price it at a million dollars a case. The other one says, well, that's ridiculous. Nobody's going to buy it. The other guy says, well, shoot, it's only going to take one. (laughs) So it depends on your market, right? So for some products, and they're going to be few and far between, product market fit might mean that 1% of the target market you show it to, you know, buys it. You make a hundred sales calls, you get one person to say, hey, I'll give this a go, right? Um, you know, that's rare, right? Most of the time, um, you know, if you think ahead to unit economics, you're going to need something where you have a decent close rate off of, you know, phone calls or face-to-face meetings, right? You know, above 50%, 65%, sometimes 80%, right? You know, and, and so before you go in, you have to think about your market and pick a, pick a benchmark for what product market fit is. And then once you pick it, you know, you measure that. And, and you see it. So for Redshirt, the, the benchmark that we picked was that after three phone calls, so in the modern era, Zoom meetings, right, we would have a 65% close rate or better for businesses that were in our niche. Each part of that definition becomes important. You have to track leads that you have that come in that you people you talk to that are not in your niche and then not count those against you, right? You know, Redshirt targets businesses that want to do texting in highly regulated environments, right? We have customers that are auto dealers, but they don't count. It doesn't matter if we started closing them at 80%, they don't contribute, right? And then you have to measure, okay, three phone calls, three meetings, do they buy, do they not buy? And you're there when you clear your benchmark. No, that makes sense. Well, tell me a little bit more about RedChirp. Uh, how did you come up with the idea? How did you end up in highly regulated environments? I mean, that, that's a, a really interesting place to be. Yeah, well, we didn't start out that way, right? <laughs> so contrary to my own advice, we started out wanting to make a product that was suitable for everybody with fingers, right? I think we all start that way. I mean, it's just kind of the, the vision of, I'm going to serve everybody. I love your analogy. You know, who's your customer? Everybody with fingers, right? Yep, everybody with fingers. Yeah. Everybody some, who can text. Some musicians set out with a target market, everybody that has ears, right? Right, right. You know, uh, uh, the better among us say that they're going to start out with their market being everyone with good taste. Right. <laughs> yeah, I like that's, that. That's, that's the very erudite way to say it. Right. <laughs> if you're not my customer. <laughs> yeah. If you don't buy it, then, then you're not a fit. Yeah, exactly. Not sophisticated yeah. enough to understand. 
Yeah, there's some clothing brands that I think take that attitude, right? Oh, there are. There definitely are. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So you know, and of course, we're going to change the world. But no, we. You know, because um, uh, you know, my co-founders are my sister and her husband. Uh, we've been in business together before. You know, we started out, I think, a little bit. You, you know, on time number three, right? You know, you start out a little bit better, and we sort of started out very much saying like, "Well, we got to do something during the pandemic, right?" So let's try to do something, you know, and we just kind of picked something, you know, uh, we did some, we had done some interviews before the pandemic started, you know, we had a very kind of thoughtful or you might say, you know, at least it sounded good when you said it, say it fast, right? We had this process, of course, we threw all that out the window, right? <laughs> you know, but, but we had this process where we're interviewing business owners and finding out pain points and all that, you know, that didn't stick, you know, we, we kind of saw that, hey, there's a pandemic on, you know, people are doing things at a distance. And we thought, you know, since you're not stopping in the stores, we thought, well, you might want to do some texting with with businesses, right? We noticed that businesses didn't have, by and large, a really good way to do that, you know, and they, they still don't. And so we started out saying, hey, let's let's make a product that lets you text and video chat with a business from their website, right? You know, and, and we had a, a kind of an organic journey from there, you know, the we knew we had to find a niche, right? And very early on, we had a couple of car dealers that used Redshirt. And we thought, oh, man, we found our niche, right? This is great. And we pretty quickly learned, hey, that's not a good niche, right? There's a lot of competition. You know, car dealers are part of these big ownership groups. They don't want to take chances on startups. There's entrenched technology players. It just wasn't a, it wasn't a good fit, right? And so we had some initial success. We moved on from that niche. We just kind of noticed that, you know, from our initial cohort of users, kind of random, you know, people that we knew or had bumped into or talked to us at random that signed up for RedShirt or agreed to try it out. We noticed that the folks that were subject to a lot of regulation, there were a lot of products they couldn't use. There's a lot of products you can use to text or video chat or whatever you want to do. Sure. You know, if you're if you're a store that sells scented candles, right? If you're a healthcare company, you're much more limited. And, uh, you know because of our prior business ventures, we have a background in compliance, right? You know, the aviation industry, pretty heavy on compliance, as you can imagine. That's a good thing. Uh, yeah, you know, it, <laughs> it keeps the airplanes up there, right? Right. Yeah, you know, I had a uh, guy from the FAA once told me that in many respects, aviation had a perfect safety record because we haven't left anybody up there yet. <laughs> right. Yeah. But yeah, you know, yeah, takeoff should always equal landings, right? <laughs> or at least approximate them, right? Right. right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so you have that background in compliance that so kind of fit for us, you know, and it gave us that answer to the question, why should we talk to you? Right. You, know, you say, well, we specialize in, in compliant businesses and you've got an answer and away you go. Oh, that's really smart. So how is it working with family in business? I know yeah, that, that can be a challenge sometimes. How have you navigated that? You know, I just, I would say that on that, we've just gotten very lucky, right? I've seen a lot of businesses that have family founders really struggle. The family dynamic that we have has made that easygoing. A lot of that's just luck of the draw, you know? So I don't have any advice for how to make that, (laughs) how to make that work, you know, for any, for anybody else. Uh, My, my sister and I, are super close with our parents. So we always had this kind of pressure upon us, you know, that we couldn't get in too big a fight because we couldn't let mom and dad down. Right. So, you know, maybe that helps. If you are 
blessed to have a relationship with your family members that's conducive to co-founding a business, right? You know, which is both temperament and skill set and availability of time and all that. It is really wonderful because you have somebody that's always at your back, right? You know, you're not going to, you know, you know, your, your sister's not going to clean out the bank account, then have an Instagram that's coming from Argentina, right? You know, right. She's in it for the long haul, right? And so that it is really nice, but a lot of people don't have that dynamic. And if you don't, I don't know how to get you there. So, no, that makes sense. I think all those are, are really good factors to look at and, and just background and skill and, uh, and, and having that, that right matchup, you know, regardless of whether they're family or not, would they be a good business partner? Would they be a complimentary business partner uh, to you? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people don't really look at it that way. They just look at it as, you know, family. Yeah, why not? But there, there are lots of reasons why not. Yep. And then once you, um, one of the, you know, the, the, this startup journey and SaaS journey is a difficult one. One of the things, you know, that makes it challenging is that, you know, that a good chance, a good percentage of time, you're not going to succeed, right? One of the nice things about it is there's no rule that says you can't try again. So that's great. When you find a good team, though, you need to stick with it, right? You have to think about who your team is. If you go back and look at some of the most successful entrepreneurs, you will see the same names coming up over and over and over again in each of their ventures. And so a lot of what they have is a really good team. And you look no further than, you know, the PayPal mafia or, you know, Ari Trevanian, every Steve Jobs business, you've got Ari in it somewhere, you know, you have some of the investors are the same, right? So, you know, when you do find that team you partner with, just hang on to that for dear life, right? That's really good. Have you done that uh, with multiple companies, brought the same team uh, outside of family, but uh, other team members, more ancillary team members, have you brought them along as well? Or has it been building new teams each time? Uh, well, I mean, no, it's, you know, it's the same people, right? <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's always, it's always, you know, Jenny and I were kind of the, the core that made, that made uh, RWS work, right? You know, which was our uh, appliance uh, SaaS business. Uh, I tried going my own with Digital Panda, special digital marketing company. It didn't work too great till I got Jenny involved, right? You know, so so no, I mean the core players, you know, the same, right? You know, frontline employees, managers, you don't want to poach those one business to another, but founders I'd, and investors, I'd say it's good to be serial. You know, keep the same group over and over again. That makes a lot of sense, and because you know each other, you know you work well, uh, you know you enjoy what you do, and, and being able to move to the next thing together is uh, is always fun. Yep. Yeah. It's fun. We're, we're one sibling short, right? So I'm, I'm sort of the technical strategy guy. My sister, Jenny, she's our operations person. We need another sister. That's the marketing and sales genius. If we had that, man, we'd be. Is it too late to adopt? (sighs) It's getting up there. (laughs) It's getting up there. (laughs) If anybody listening to this would like to. uh, Yes. Yes. There you go. If you can sell ice cream to Eskimos, you know, (laughs) then. So tell me a little bit more about uh, you know your background in the businesses. So we've heard Red Chirp, we've heard about Digital Panda, uh, we've heard about the appliance. I can't remember the name of that one uh, you just mentioned. Neither can anybody else. Yeah. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah. So when it when it comes to to software, uh, well, hey, I'll, I'll even go further back. We had this aviation maintenance shop, Potsdam Aviation Maintenance. So to the to the uh, you know twenty five customers that we had, you know. <laughs> You know, you guys go, right? 
you know, turning to software. So we had intelligent environments, which made software that went with textbooks, right? Never really, you know, got off the ground with that. The, uh, uh, after that, <clears throat> we had a business that did, you know, uh, digital marketing for a major appliance retailers. You know, that was kind of our first uh, substantial success, right? So we grew that, you know, from, from zero, uh, you know, up to about, a, you know, 100 employees, a little more than that. You know, we served, a, I think it was like 2,500 or 3,000, you know, appliance dealers across the United States. Which, you know, to toot my own horn, the market is about 5,000. So that's a pretty decent market. Wow, that is great. Right. So there we were niched down. We had a list of every customer <laughs> that, that fit our market. We knew, we knew 100% of the market. You know, after that, we did sort of a, a closely related business, right? We, we, we built this digital marketing business, Digital Panda, that was designed for, you know, these, these kind of channel marketing situations. You know, you have a manufacturer that wants to sponsor digital marketing, but their products only sold through independent retailers, right? So it was very much an opportunity that we were introduced to, you know, through our work with appliance retailers, right? You know, so the classic example there is, you know, your Whirlpool, you want to advertise your new washing machines, but there's, there's not a, a big retail presence in every state where Whirlpool is selling their product, right? Right. <clears throat> so you need a digital advertising product that lets them, you know, compose campaigns at the brand level and then have, you know, have it, you know, have the conversion goal be getting people to come into stores, right? Yeah, I can, I can see the excitement. <laughs> you know, it, it was, it, you know, it was, it was better than watching paint dry, but, you know, it, uh, uh, you know, not by much, sadly, it's a very focused niche, but, uh, you know, I think we did pretty well by it. Well, some of the, the most profitable businesses are not, you know, just by definition, super exciting. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you can do really, really well in something that, that may seem simple or, or mundane. You know, it's a, a real need in the marketplace. You provide a great solution. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, the, the sexier, more attractive businesses, the more competition you're going to have. So, uh, that's true. You know, go in the other direction. I remember meeting somebody a number of years ago and a million dollar vehicle and uh, just, you know, what do you do? And, uh, he said, well, I own a company that makes boxes. Do what? <laughs> and, and it was just one of those aha moments of, you know, some businesses do really, really well. And, uh, and they're just not something that there's not a whole lot of competition. I don't know anybody that, that grows up and goes, Hey, I'm going to own a box factory, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, it's just one of those things it can be, uh, you know, it, it's a very specific niche. It is something that is highly profitable. It's something that really fills a need, especially as e-commerce continued to grow. And so it just made a whole lot of sense Yep. in looking at those things. Yeah. I, m- I met a, I met this fellow that made a fortune selling men's clothing to salesmen at car dealerships. So he developed this whole shtick. He would have this broken down car and in the trunk, he would rig up this thing, you know, to show off the wares, the ties and the tie tacks and everything. <laughs> and it was, you know, it, it would be this car that was, you know, one breath away from falling apart. Right. You know, and he had it all mapped out the times he would go right to the dealerships when they were, when they were slow and he would go in and he ultimately had a fleet of cars doing this, right? And he made, you know, he made, you know, as he described, quite a fortune off of it, you know. And yeah, I don't think anybody would call that exciting, but it worked, right? Yeah, it's just a, a business that works. It, it's amazing the things that people come up with um, and, and grow into to thriving businesses. Oh yeah, yeah. 
So how do you come up with, with your ideas? Where have those come from you know, over time you know, as you've, you've continued to, to iterate and move forward and start new things? I've always looked at an idea that is compatible with a, with a megatrend, right? The way I've heard it described is if you, if you can stand by a raging river, you can't help but get wet. That's smart. Right? So if you think about it, taking a look at retailer web services, right? The megatrend at the time was that every local business was eventually going to have to have a web presence, right? And every retail business was going to have to have a web presence where they could sell their product, you know, e-commerce web presence, right? You know, and so that was kind of a zero to one transition. And so we knew that directionally it was right. So then if you pick a, a small niche of that, say appliance stores, right? You know, and, and you can look around and you say, well, okay, there's 6,000 of these or 5,500 of these, right? How many have good e-commerce websites? Six. You're like, okay, great. I'm surprised that six did. Yeah, no, they did. And they were doing really well. There was a company, AJ Madison, that okay. grew from a sure. startup to, you know, a couple hundred million dollars in revenue a year quickly. And that was their whole thing was, you know, they had a, they had a website, right? Yeah. You know, so yeah, so you try to find something directionally correct. Red Chirp is kind of similar, right? You know, if you go to most websites today for businesses, particularly small and medium businesses, you will find their phone number on there, right? And one of their conversion goals is call us on the phone. Right. Right. Do people still do that? Yeah, people do. And you'd be surprised the number of businesses that you cannot shoot a text to. Right. You know, and then if you take that up a notch to where you can easily get connected with various individual employees in the business over text, it's pretty rare. You know, not, it's not unheard of, you know, Uber does it, Airbnb, they have platforms that enable you to communicate via text with the people you're Right. Giving you your ride or whatever. Right. You know, but think about like your coffee shop on the corner. Right. You know, you know, if there's a barista there that you like, can you text her and say, hey, are you there on Tuesday? And the answer is almost certainly no. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's creepy. But yeah. Well, yeah. You know, <laughs> no, or, no, or, you know a car dealership and you, a sales sure. guy is there. That, that's a great use case. Yeah. Or zeroing in on, on red trip. Right. right. You're father is being cared for at home. He's in a home care scenario, right? And you and you hear that his current caregiver is on vacation, his regular caregiver is on vacation, and a new person is going to be giving care for him, right? Can you text that person to let them know something? Right. You know, the answer is typically no. You're If you want to do that, you're going to be playing phone tag for a while. You're going to call into a switchboard. They're not going to know what to do. They're going to maybe give you a number. They're going to pass a message. That person's going to call you back. Right. You know, and you should be able to. And, you know, in 25 years, you will, every business will have every employee that is frontline accessible um, to the right people via text, right? And so the red trip's sort of the same, you know, directionally correct, um, uninspired, you know, this is not like radical, you know, craziness, right? You know, technologically feasible. We're not talking about teleportation. But it solves a need and, uh, and, and really solves the, the, the problem and it speeds up time. And I think that's one of the most important resources that we have. And when we can do that and remove friction, speed up time for clients, for interactions, that uh, you know that benefits everybody. Oh yeah, there's no doubt that it's better. There, there's a really present barrier there. You know, uh, I think as business people, we're we tend to be a little more out there. We're more comfortable reaching out to somebody we don't know via phone, right? You have to put yourself into the mindset of a consumer, maybe even a reluctant consumer, right? If you're in wine country on vacation and you've never really been to a winery, let's say, right? It's your first time. 
if you have 20 options to go to, but one of them, you can just text and make an appointment. Right. A lot of people are just going to go for that. It's, it's low risk, you know, um, you're not putting yourself out there. Well, that's, that's definitely the easy way. Oh yeah. Because you, you know, they don't want to be asked questions. They don't know the answers to, they don't really know what to expect. And, mm-hmm. and just having that process where they're kind of guided through makes it really, really easy to, to, to move in. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's easy. It's asynchronous. If you don't like what you're hearing, you can just, you know, just ghost, you know, just disappear. <laughs> yeah. Look no further than your personal life. You know, when I was, when I was a young man, you wanted to ask a, a, a young lady out, you had to call her home, her landline. And it's kind of intimidating. Mom. Yeah. Is Mary there? Right. Yeah. You know, and that gave way to cell phones, but uh, texting is way better. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's the same, same deal with, uh, you know, with sales, right. It's just, it's much better. You have a question or whatever. You just shoot somebody a text. It's, it's better. And I think that the, the real difference is you're looking at that through the eyes of the consumer, not through the eyes of the business. And really, you know, what is going to make that experience great for them? Not uh, what can we do with our cool technology or what do we think the market needs? But it's really you're putting yourselves in their position and uh, what would what would make things great for them? Yeah. You know, one thing that you might remark on later in this conversation is although we are in the software business, technology business, so far we have not talked about anything technology related, right? You know, everything, you know, what, you know, is, is down to the human need that people have and how they feel about it. It's hundred percent correct. It, it really is. It's the, the people business. It's solving, you know, problems with people. We use technology to do that, mm-hmm. but ultimately it is about the, the real problems that real normal people are having every day. Yeah. And, and, you know, and every sale that you make is going to be on a, on an emotional basis or the vast majority will be. And so if you think about, you know, your product or what you're doing in those terms, I think you'll overall be much more successful. So how does that work in a B2B environment? I completely agree with you that it is an emotional decision, but if you're selling to a company, how do emotions play into that decision? The decision is almost always emotional, right? I, I, now there's some listener out there that's selling asphalt, right? And for you, I can say, no, it's a commodity. And it's, you know, if you're one cent cheaper and can deliver on time, you're going to get the business, right? But, you know, most of our business decisions are, are, are very emotional, right? Because, you know, we all have live frantic lives, right? You know, and we feel that they're overly full and we bring that with us into work. And so you come into work and you have a job to get done. You know, you want to, you want to get your job done. You want to get home to your family. You know, that's, that's your typical mindset. Most people right. kind of approach their life that way, right? And so we, we place upon ourselves this veneer of rationality, right? You know, everybody thinks I make all my decisions completely rationally, right? You know, we like to think, um, that. oh yeah, we do. We do. And, and, you know, and if we did, I think, I think Google overall would be much more successful because <laughs> all, of, all of their products today tend to, tend to really appeal to that rational user. Right. You know? Google Drive is 16% cheaper than Dropbox. <laughs> Nobody uses it. <laughs> right. I'm sorry to the Google Drive engineer that's out there. I know you have millions of users, but it's not Dropbox, right? right? You know, but uh, yeah. And so, you know, beneath that that facade, you know, we're thinking about how we're going to get our, the job we have to get done, you know, done and and get home, right? We're thinking about, hey, when something goes wrong, how much of a record am I going to have? Am I, am I going to be safe? Am I able to say, hey, I did everything right when somebody's looking at this, right? You know, how does it feel? Is it going to work? Am I comfortable with this? Right. Am I going to look bad in front of my coworkers? Right. You know, and so those kind of, those kind of emotions are, you know, are always present there. hundred percent. Right. Well, looking back over your career, you've done some amazing things. 
And, uh, and looking back, you know, what are some lessons that you've learned along the way that, uh, that you'd love to go back and, and tell your, your early career self, or maybe somebody who's starting out today, what would some of those be? Well, there's a couple. I have, I have a joke that popped to mind, but I'm going to refrain from making it. <laughs> oh, you can make it. We can always edit. All right. All right. You ready? You ready? <laughs> so what I would tell my younger self is don't do drugs. Become a rock star and they'll just give them to you for free. <laughs> Sadly, none of that's true. <laughs> but um, uh, all right. So key things to focus on, right? When I was in college, there was a professional cycling coach that came and talked to us, right? And he was talking about what it's like to coach cyclists. And, you know, there's this, there's that at the time, like, hey, you're just, you know, just pedaling the bike. Like, what do you coach somebody on? Just pedal harder, <laughs> right? You know, you'll go faster. Somebody asked him, you know, this question, like, hey, like what separates a, you know, like a, a high level amateur cyclist from a professional? And he said that, and, and th this was what stuck with me. He said that the thing that separated it was their ability to do less, you know, and so that high level amateur would take on any amount of additional training, any amount of additional work that the coach foisted on them. If he said, ride 200 miles a day, they would try. The professional, though, when the coach said, hey, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tomorrow, you know, go for a walk in the morning, loosen yourself up. And I want you to take a three hour nap in the afternoon. I want you to go easy. The coach would stop by and that person would be painting their garage or something. Right. They wouldn't they wouldn't do less. So the most insightful pieces of advice that I've had have always been about doing less in and throughout the career I had in RWS. I was always going to conferences, reading books. And it was always, oh, I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do, man, I got to do a net promoter score survey. I got to do, I got to do this thing. I got to do that thing, right? Never enough time in the day. It just made me feel bad, right? Okay, so let's talk about doing less, right? You want to pare down what you're doing so you can do a better job. In order to do that, you have to be able to answer the following question. For the stage that I'm at right now, what is the most important thing? Every stage of a SaaS business up through the stages I've experienced, right? You know, it might change when you're Google or something, but, you know, uh, when you're starting out, you have one overriding objective. If you're trying to get your prototype out or get your MVP out, that's what it's about, MVP, right? If it doesn't pertain to that, don't work on it. You know, know what, know what your goal is in the stage you're in now. Don't work on stuff that's not in the stage, right? So if you're building that... Um, that super prototype that's gonna you're gonna show to your initial cohort, right? Don't waste time having long conversations about the size of the total addressable market. That is three buckets down the road or four buckets down the road. So you want to you want to always know what you're what you're doing right now, right? You want to have a predefined moment where you will know that you've entered the next phase. So you want to be able to say, "I am in this phase." And this phase will end when I X, right? And that, that, that ending part has to be written down. That's really important. Otherwise, we forget what it was or, or we try and fudge it. Either we made it or, or we didn't make it. That's right. It, it's also, you know, earlier we were talking about cohesiveness among founders, right? This is a great way to create adhesiveness or cohesiveness, right? And no slight meant to those wonderful business owners out there that sell the ropes courses and all that, right? You know, you have a place. But having written down, like, you know, you just get everybody around and you say, hey, guys, what we're going to do today is we're going to write down where we're trying to get to. Does anybody know where we're trying to get to? 
and you write it down, you pair it down to one, you get everybody to say like, I agree to this, right? Right. Now take a lesson from your local car dealership, have everybody sign it. Creates this bond to it, right? And then you say, okay, guys, how are we going to know when we get there? And everybody's going to say, well, that's obvious. We'll know it. I'm like, great, it's obvious. <laughs> right, <laughs> Tell right. me, I'll write it down. <laughs> everybody writes it down and it's all different because it's so obvious. It's usually very tough, right? <laughs> right. You get that written down. And one of the things that's really nice about that is that, you know, when, you're, when your founder comes in and he's, and, you know, and you're trying to build your, your MVP and he's talking about, oh man, you know, there's this company up for sale and they might want to buy us or our total address of market is this. You can say, hey, remember this piece of paper <laughs> on it or written the things we're working on. I didn't see that on the list, right? But you can also end some arguments. You can say, okay, listen, let's frame this up. Is now the time to change what's on what's on this page? Right. You know, uh, did we make a mistake? Do we have to go back? Right. Or look, is this just a you know is this just a distraction? And we can talk about it you know for five minutes, get it out of our system, and and move on. Right. You know, so so those kind of things are 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 very important. You know, to think about the things that end conversations. Right. So tell me about that. We talked about that a little bit earlier in another conversation about conversation enders. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. So, you know, picture in your mind that early stage startup, right? What we want is to have a bunch of people in a room with their little headphones on, hopefully a trendy space, you know, some brick walls, you know, kind of like a WeWork, but whatever the correct replacement for that is now, right? Patiently working away, fanatically building their product, right? Right. So that's the vision. That's probably what should happen. The reality is a bunch of founders talking to each other all the time. <laughs> Sometimes I'm drinking alcohol, right? <laughs> that just doesn't feel right. You know, like we would all, if, if I said going into it, hey, listen, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build the next Facebook. So what we're going to do is spend about 80% of our time talking to each other about it. I think most people would say, oh, it doesn't sound like a formula for success. And those people would be right. So conversations are going to start. You have to have converse, You have to have a way to end them um, efficiently without hurting somebody's feelings, right? And so the best way to do that is to lay a, lay a foundation. If you define what's important and what's not, and you define when you how you know when you're going to get to the spot where you can change it, you you know change what's important to the next phase, right? You have a good way to end a lot of conversations, you know, and you can extend that over time if a conversation starts. And you've previously ended it, you can say like, hey, you know, like, that's cool. And it's fun to talk about, like, maybe on Saturday, we'll have a beer, we'll chat about that or whatever, you know, but if you have this nice way of ending the conversations, and you get this agreement in your core group, that you're not going to go down these rabbit holes, it will save you a tremendous amount of time, leave you a lot of energy to work on, you know, what is most important, you know, right now. That makes a lot of sense. So like, what would an example of one of those rabbit holes be? Total addressable market creating a sustainable moat you don't you don't get to moat phase until like like phase eight right that's (laughs) that's way down the line yeah it's way down right Uh, networking effects right endless conversations about this great networking effect when you don't have an mvp i think most networking effects happen accidentally and in reverse oh we always oh yeah absolutely right you know and so yeah like those are you know those are all things you know, talk about things that drive business valuation. If you're not preparing to go to market, you know, which is probably your last phase, right? There's no point in talking about that. You know, like you're not there. There's eight pivots between here and there, right? 
earlier on, more people are early on than are late, right? Talking about unit economics before you have product market fit. Mm, that's a big one. Yep. A lot of arguments start that way. You know, hey, John took a trip to California. You know, he signed up our, our first cohort. He spent $10,000. We are never going to make it if it costs $10,000 per customer. Why the heck did he do that? It's like, well, because at the moment, unit economics do not don't count. So as long as the Amex has room for it, we're going to go try it <laughs> and we're not going to talk about it again, right? I think that's important is really understanding what metrics are important now and what are we working on, what the right next step is versus, mm -hmm. you know, things that, that may happen five, six, 10, 20 steps down the road. Yep. But beware of metrics. So metrics are great. Sound cool. They impress your friends. Your investors want to know about them. Awesome. However, they're devilishly, fiendishly difficult because the founders working in a business are very emotional. And so the way you define your metrics, super, super, super important. I, I'll give you a good example that we got wrong in the early days of Redshirt. Right? Sure. So we had a metric, monthly recurring revenue. And we defined it like this. We said, okay, so monthly recurring revenue is easy. It's what our customers have committed to pay monthly. Okay. A lot of companies do this. They slam dunk it. They even write it down if they're very sophisticated, right? And have taken my advice to the three people out there that are going to take my advice. Thank you. <laughs> Great. But that has all kinds of emotional drawbacks, right? Imagine that you sign an account and they're a very valuable account. Let's say they're going to be $50,000 a month. But what they want is they want two months of free trial and then they're going to get going, right? So if it is January 15th, right? And they're going to try for two months. So then you've got February and March, and then it's going to be like maybe March 15th before they give you the go signal. And you're not, and you're only going to bill them on say April 1st. You're going to feel really terrible because that MRR metric, it didn't move. Right. And, you know, and, and everybody's going to say, that's crazy. I'd feel great about it. It's like, really? We didn't feel great about it. We made that mistake. Right. And so we switched to a different metric, which was AMRR, anticipated monthly recurring revenue. And so we defined some buckets. We said, okay, when somebody sends us paperwork, we're going to count that as 10%. So if their monthly recurring revenue that we anticipate is going to be $100 a month, we'll put $10 towards our AMR metric. And then when they start their free trial, we're going to put it at $30, 30%, right? And then when they give us the go-ahead at the end of the free trial, we're going to put them at 70. And then when they actually start, we're going to put them at 100. And so what that does is it lets you have immediate response. When you make that big sale, the AMRR moves and you feel good about it. That detail in metrics is everything about, about how the metric motivates you, right? Or how, it, or how it doesn't motivate you, right? A small change. Hey, we'll count somebody that gives us a verbal yes at 70%. Great. What that's going to incentivize is everybody going out and getting a bunch of soft yeses right. that never move. You're going to hit your number and then you're going to be crying later because you don't have any real... The revenue didn't ever come in. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Now that that uh, is really really insightful in just thinking about you know what is the the emotional impact of the the metrics so it's not just the hard numbers but what's what's really behind that and the team seeing growth so they're seeing some reward from their effort on a consistent basis yeah yeah and the immediacy of that really progress matters. yeah nobody's patient nobody likes to wait no of course not yeah and then and then also critically important writing down all the rules of the game on a metric, right? 
And that's going to serve you very well as you grow, because you're going to start out with founders doing all the sales, right? But sooner or later, you're going to hire these aliens, salespeople. <laughs> I love that description. Yeah, the better, well, to founders, salespeople are going to yes. are going to be are going to be aliens, right? It's going to be very, you know, your success with that sales team, in my experience, is going to be largely driven by how well you have defined the rules, right? Because salespeople, professional salespeople tend to be rule optimizers, right? They're trying to maximize their commission. They're trying to figure out what sort of incentives you're going to, you're going to, you're going to employ, right? You know, how do they do well under the incentive plan that you have, all that kind of stuff. So if you don't have good rules and you haven't been testing them over time, you're going to have loopholes. You're going to be incentivizing activity you don't want. And good rules take time. They're like fine wine. You have to age them, right? And so the earlier that you start clearly defining your metrics and then writing down every little tiny exception and so on and so forth, right? The better your rules are going to be later on when you add team members. Oh, that's really, really great advice. It sounds good when you say it fast, right? <laughs> yeah, doing it is the most important piece. Yeah. So it's uh, the value is in the action. Yeah. To say is to forget. To write is to remember. Ah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Somebody said that, not me. But yeah, that that's also true. You know, so like, so having having stuff written down, uh, it helps tremendously. It helps in your relationship with founders as well. So one of the things we did when we started Redshirt, we we did write down, you know, the geeky family members that we are. Right? What are we trying to do? And so we actually have like a three page document. You know, what are we trying to do with Redshirt? Right? You know, and and you know, it's that conversation is going to go similarly. Pizza, beer, founders, what are we trying to do? Get rich. <laughs> and it's like, okay, really? Let's ask some questions about that. What does what what does what does that mean? Define it. Right. What is the number? Okay, great. You get a number written down, right? Then you say, okay, the next question you ask is, all right. So if we are arms dealers trafficking into war zones, <laughs> would that count? And then most people are like, all right, no. And so you can quickly start writing more down. <laughs> the more right. the more you write this down the that's going to be a really good argument and conversation ender you know you know later on right you know when somebody says oh man this other company they took venture capital well a lot of people's documents are going to say well we're not going to take outside venture capital right you know unless the founders are pulling money off the table we're not going to take outside money a lot of people either will write that or or should you know write that right. in. most people are not you know they they'll picture themselves up for the up for the ride on a swing for the fences, venture backed investment, but they're not really there. You know, you'd be better off to say, look, if, you know, if we're going to get a million dollars, at least 900,000 has to be going out to the founders. <laughs> right. You know, that means when this company down the street that's losing money gets a $5 million series a and everybody's, why wasn't that us? You can say like, you know, we wrote it down. <laughs> it's in our, it's in our founding documents. So that's why it wasn't us. Right. And that, that's really smart and just really thinking about, you know, what is that? What are the core values? What are the things that you are going to do or not going to do? Yeah. And very personal too. Yes. We're going to serve customers within the United States. We are not going to travel more than one day on average per week, right? This is, it's not rocket surgery. You really want to define like, I want my business ownership experience to look like this. You know, we want mostly recurring revenue or we don't care. We're, we're, we're chasing the highest revenue figure profit, uh, possible. Um, how much revenue do you want to reinvest into the business? Do you want to pull a profit out? How are you going to decide? Are you going to pay down 
debt before you distribute profits, right? You know, like you can just write all that down and, and figure it out ahead of time. It really helps. No, that's really good. You're really creating the, the rules, your own rules of the game uh, before you start playing. That happens over time as well, I'm sure. Yeah, you can always change them. But the, the, the key test is when, when one of your founders or employees comes at you and says, I don't like this, we need to do this, right? You know, or, or they're upset about something that happened. You can, you can really diffuse that situation by saying, okay, look, there's, there's a couple possibilities here. Did we make a mistake? We made the rules. And do we need to have a conversation where we go back through the rules and we edit them? Or is this a unique circumstance? Are we just upset because fate didn't smile on us today? Right. You know, or are we upset about the choices that we made because we can't pick everything? And, you know, that, that, that tends to suck a lot of the energy out and gets you moving in a, in a, in a productive direction you know, quickly when you can do that. If you don't have anything written down, you can't, you can't do that. The conversation will then just immediately pivot to, well, wait, no, you said the rule was this. And, right. And away you go. Or it's not something that everybody buys into. They haven't all agreed to it. And so it's something that is completely fluid. And so it's a discussion every single time this comes up. Yeah. And that's why you also want to get somebody to sign it. I heard a story once that prisoners of war were forced to write these confessions of all these atrocities they'd committed and that they, they didn't really believe in their, in their initiative. And then they were forced to sign them. And even after they were liberated, you know, they were made to do this under terrible duress, you know, torture and all that. But even afterwards, they were reluctant to, to go back on, on what they had agreed to and what they had signed, right? And so if it worked for prisoners of war, you know, your founders, wow. which are merely imprisoned by their capital and time <laughs> contributions, right? You know, yeah, it really it really helps create a lot of alignment and also lets you, you know, lets you sleep at night, right? You know, you can say, I'm not going to worry about this because we, you know, we, uh, we, we thought about it, we made our choice and we're going to live by it. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Well, at least sounds good, right? Yes, yes. Really enjoyed the, the conversation today. I'll ask you one final question and that is, you know, lots of SaaS founders listening, you know, what, to, what would be one thing that you would tell them, you know, to do today to prepare for the the next two, three, five years and and where technology is going. We, what mega trends are we seeing now that we can be a part of? Oh, mega trends that we are seeing now. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to say some things now that are very unpopular. All right. Okay. We are entering a protracted period of labor shortage, right? You have, you have continued economic growth, which of course compounds, you know, that little 3%, it grows, it grows, it grows. Right. The industrialized economies of the world, the English speaking countries of the world are either at or have tipped over the point of population decline, right? The average age of the population is getting, is getting older. These numbers are like gravity. And so we're seeing the leading edge of that today, but I believe that that is going to be the biggest megatrend that is going to define the balance of our lives. And there's no quick reversal. And if you don't believe that, think of, think in your picture in your mind China for a moment, right? They had a one-child policy for a long time. Right. If you don't believe that that population is going to age and that they're going to have a problem where they have an inversion, they have more older and retired people than young workers and so forth, I, I don't know how to help you at, at that point. Uh, there's It's a billion-person country. You can't even have immigration that would satisfy that, right? Right. So... That, that's going to be the biggest megatrend, just all out. So if you can do something that helps in that direction, you're going to have the wind at your back, right? 
you know, getting labor out, helping recruit labor, that sort of thing, right? Stepping down from that, a less controversial megatrend, security and compliance, right? You know, back in the Wild West, there, there wasn't a lot of compliance. There weren't very many standards, you know? And if you've seen the movie, A Million Ways to Die in the West or something <laughs> like that, <laughs> you know, that's how it was. That's, that's largely how most software is today, right? You know, there's a hodgepodge of highly compliant folks out there. Most firms are just shooting from the hip, right? As we grow to depend more and more on technology, which everybody is, people are going to want it safe. You know, at one point, we didn't have the Food and Drug Administration. We didn't have the Pure Food Act. Before that point, people regularly were poisoned. They got, you know, they, they had um, cough medicines that were, you know, cocaine and whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> and people eventually said, hey, we've had enough. And this has to be regulated and stuff has to be safe. So whether it's the regulation or industry standard, compliance, security, you know, and having a certain level of safety is coming. If you want to make somebody's dinner, you have to have a three basin sink. You have to wash your hands. You have to wear gloves. You got to have a hairnet. It's, it's coming. If you want to make software, you're going to have to have unit tests. You're going to have to have security audits. You're going to have to have encryption at rest. You're going to have all these compliance oriented things. So don't swim upstream, swim downstream. You know, anything that's going to take a non-compliant activity and help it be compliant is going to have, you know, kind of the wind, uh, you know, at its back, right? So there, that, that's two big ones. <laughs> Those are, are huge. Yeah, well, mega, I mean, you know, mega trends. Yes, I think that that's absolutely correct. I'm just looking at the, the population. Uh, that's, you're 100% right. And, and that is true globally and global populations are, are, are going down. And so, you know, to be successful, those companies that are, are helping uh, replace human labor with, uh, you know, technology solutions or some sort of automation is real opportunities there. And, and just driving the, the labor costs out of the market because labor is going to continue to be more expensive and harder to get. Yeah, absolutely. And there's also, there's a little pocket trend in there within the United States and other Western countries where we've had this abnormal allocation of workers towards, you know, knowledge work, so-called white collar work, right? And what you're also going to see, and, and I think it's playing out now, is you're going to have this, there's this giant sucking sound to quote Ross Perot, right? Mm -hmm. We've been over allocating to white collar at the expense of blue collar trade jobs, that sort of thing. The wages in those fields have shot sky high, right? Yes. Yeah. A good question. If you, if I gave you a choice, would you like to be a fully licensed, from just an earnings standpoint, fully licensed electrician or a member of the bar? So a lawyer that doesn't have an Ivy League degree. What do you imagine? Who's going to have the best earnings over the next 20 years, right? Absolutely. The electrician. Yeah. And, and that can't be outsourced. That's a, another thing. Is it something that will always be required? It's in demand. It's a, a really important skill. Yeah. And, and you can never outsource that to another company or overseas or remote. Yeah. I mean, nobody is going to be doing, you know, remote electrical work from, from somewhere. Yeah. And now risk adjusted. Yes. You know, as a lawyer, there's a lot of risk. Am I going to meet the right clients early on that grow in to pay me a lot of money later on? Am I going to become a partner at a top tier firm or is my firm going to get swallowed by somebody else? So many risks. Today, you're 
am I going to have you know two hundred thousand dollars in student loans that that I can't pay back? Yeah, because I don't have all of these other things falling into place. Or am I going to you know get a, a trade skill and and learn that and go and, and make money? Yeah. Now put yourself in the mindset of that electrician, right? Risks. Will people need electricity? <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's a pretty good place to be. Yeah. Yeah. Pr- precisely. Right. And, and so the impact of that is just starting to get felt in the labor market. And so two ways to play it. Anything you can do now that's going to make, you know, trade workers, blue collar workers more productive, you're going to have the wind at your back, right? Doubly so for white collar workers, because we have this sort of historical accident, this big surplus right now, but going forward, the mix is going to be different. And so you're just not going to have as many. And so they're going to need even more you know, get yourself positioned, you know, with that at your back in any respect, and you're going to have a, you know, downhill sledding, hopefully. That is great advice. Yeah. Hey, with blue collar workers, it's so intense. Your solution probably doesn't even have to work. (laughs) Just, you you know, the barrier at the moment might be sounds good, (laughs) you know, right. So, you know, you, you could be closer there. That's great. Well, Jim, I really enjoyed our conversation today. Really appreciate you being on SAS Fuel. How can people find out more about Red Chirp and where can we find you online? Uh, so redchirp.com, red like the color, chirp like a bird. Uh, you can check it out. Um, we do let you text us. So you could just go there and shoot us a text message and you know we will respond. So that would be the, that'd be the super easy way to try it out, right? That's great. And we'll add uh, Red Chirp and your links in the, the show notes. So as always, everything will, will show up there that we talked about today. So I really appreciate our conversation. It was great talking with you. Yeah, pleasure being here. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jim. Thanks again to Jim for coming on the show and sharing his insights and resources. You can learn more about Jim and check out his company at redchirp.com. And of course, follow him on all social media. As always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sassfuel.com. As a reminder, if you're joining the show, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. I will be sure to read these out on a future episode and give you credit for it. So keep those comments coming in. Tune in next week for our conversation with Andrew Amon, three-time SaaS founder and CEO of 9to3, which is a startup studio that has launched over 50 client SaaS products and 14 of their own. So that episode is absolutely loaded with gold nuggets. So we'll see you there. And until we meet again next week, enjoy the journey. Let's go! And I think we're good.